So in the New Herald of Kilgore, Texas, there was a news article that reported that there was a motorist who was taken from the scene of an accident and they took him to a nearby gas station. And the paramedics um, come and, and, and try to help him and he struggles violently with the people that are trying to help him. He's, he's really resisting any kind of help and they, they finally subdue him and, and get him to the hospital and get him the help that he needs. And, and when he finally calms down enough, they ask him why he was resisting his rescuers so much. And he tells them that he was taken to a shell station and somebody was standing in front of the S. Good. Very good. See, these are great preacher jokes. And it was a little slow this morning. So he was at the hospital and they were asking the rescuer, the rescuers were asking him why he was so upset. And he said that they had taken him to a shell station and they were standing in front of the S. Very good, thank you. All right, much quicker. All right, so he's standing in front of this. So it is important, it's important to read the entire sign, right? It's important to see the entire picture, to see what's going on. Standing in front of the S changes the nature of a shell sign when you think you're about to die or have already died, right? And so we need to see the whole thing. And so we are in a series called The Story, where we are going through Scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation, and we're taking out excerpts from that and looking at a high-level picture of the entire story of Jesus. Because looking at just bits and pieces does not give us a full picture of what God is trying to do and what God is trying to say to us. And so this week we are in chapter 21, and we are at the end of the Old Testament. Hallelujah right? We're at the end of the Old Testament, and we've been going on this journey. You can, you can see the story progress as we go. We go through 21 chapters of the Old Testament and seeing the story of God played out, this story of pursuit, this story of love, this, this story of people messing up and screwing up and, and avoiding God and rejecting God and Him sending in His prophets to, to bring them back on track. And so we go through this story, and we see a God who loves us and a God who is in pursuit of us. And so next Sunday, we start chapter 22, which is the birth of Jesus. And so we are going to celebrate Christmas next week. We're going to celebrate the birth of the King, the birth of the one that we have been waiting for. And so in your, your programs and, and, and stacks out in the foyer, there are these invite cards these are postcards for you to use to invite somebody to join you in the story of Jesus. We're going to spend six weeks on Jesus, and we are going to end with a celebration on Easter weekend. The story of Jesus will, will go through April 5th, which is Easter Sunday, and so we want to be praying about who we can invite into hearing this story. And so we're staying on track with the story, but we're just freshening it up a little bit to say we're going to be focusing in on the story of Jesus. We're going to be there for six weeks. And so please use these cards to invite somebody. Well, this week we are going to focus our attention on Ezra. And so in, in chapter 21, we read, we read the story of Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and a little bit of Malachi. And there's a lot to focus in on there. There's the rebuilding of the, of the temple that occurred a few weeks ago. And then now we've got the rebuilding of the walls. And Ezra comes in for a rebuilding 
of the law of God and a restoration of the law of God. Ezra was living in an exciting time because this was a time where, where the Jews had been in captivity for some 70 years and they had finally been released to go back to their homeland, go back to Jerusalem. And this is the time period that Ezra is living in. He's not living in the time of uncertain exile. He is living in the time of hopeful return to Jerusalem. And so before Ezra, we have this group that goes back to Jerusalem, and they start rebuilding the temple. They've rebuilt the temple, and then, then Ezra encounters King Artaxerxes. And the king wants Ezra to go back to Jerusalem as a priest to take the law of God back to Jerusalem. And so this is really quite a fascinating story that, that this pagan king, this King Artaxerxes from the, the kingdom of Persia would say to Ezra, go back, take some people with you, and reinstitute, reinstate the law of God. Go back and give this. And so there is no one more qualified than Ezra. He is of priestly descent all the way back to Aaron himself. And he is the one who is going to be sent and go back to take the law to the people. And so this is a pretty um, unprecedented thing, right? We've got King Artaxerxes. He doesn't send a political governor. He doesn't send a military ruler. He sends a priest to go back and reestablish the religion of the people. And so remember where we've been at over the last several weeks. We have this story where the Jews have been taken into captivity. They're taken into Persia, and, they, and the temple is destroyed, but while they are in exile, while they are there, they are in a, a place where people like Daniel, people like Mordecai, people like Esther have come onto the scene and have had such incredible influence on what's going on there. We've seen the influence that these characters have had and the change that has happened because of their influence there. And so something is going on where King Artaxerxes actually has been influenced in some way where he values and sees the importance of the law of God, not his God, but the law of the Jews' God. He sees the importance of that being reinstated in Jerusalem. And so he takes Ezra and sends him back. And so maybe King Artaxerxes has been influenced in some way by the generations that have come before, the, the influence of Daniel, the influence of Esther, and he wants to give the Jews a chance to really rebuild their city, and not just the walls, and not just the temple, but their culture and their faith and their religion. And so as we reflect on that, don't underestimate the influence that you can have. You can have lasting influence through generations. And so we see in the story of Daniel, and we see in the story of Esther, and now we see in the story of Ezra that there is great fruit from this lasting this lasting influence. We can be people of influence that will have an impact on future generations. And so Artaxerxes sends the priest Ezra to Jerusalem to help, the, help get the people back to the institution of their God and under the instruction of their God. And so Ezra goes to Jerusalem and spends the rest of his life there teaching the law of God. So a couple weeks ago, we looked at the rebuilding of the wall. 
And in Nehemiah, we see the, or a few weeks ago, we looked at the rebuilding of the temple. And then in Nehemiah, we see the rebuilding of the wall. And now here we have Ezra reinstating the law, the word of God, a place at the center, and it's placed at the center of the people's lives. And so think about how true that can be today. We, we spend so much of our energy, we spend so much of our time getting an education, planning a wedding, getting the kids to the right school, getting on the right team, finding the right church. We focus on each of those steps. But at the end of all of that, if the word of God is not at the center, if the word of God is not the priority, if the word of God is not the, the thing that is doing the influencing, then none of that really makes a difference. It does not matter the career, it does not matter the bank account, it doesn't matter how good the marriage or how good the kids or how good the education or how good the sports team or how good the GPA. If the word of God is not at the center, then all of that is just a waste. And so we're called to make the word of God the center of our lives. That's why God gave the law in the first place, right? He wanted a relationship with his people, and so he gave them this law as, as a, defi- a definition of what it meant to be in relationship with each other and what it meant to be in relationship with God. And he gave us this framework. And so now they're back in Jerusalem. They have a temple. They have a city. But without the word of God being restored in their lives, it wouldn't last. And so now let's zoom in on the story of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, starting in verse 1. So he starts off in these first several verses giving a history, a a lineage of who Ezra is. Okay, so we're not going to read through all these names because that's just embarrassing. All right, after these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of, 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 all the way down there to the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So the important thing here is Ezra is a descendant of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first of the chief priests. And so Ezra has a very important heritage here. And so we continue reading after all of his fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. He is the son of Aaron. This Ezra, so this is the Ezra that came from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord the God of Israel had given. The king had granted him everything he asked from the hand, from the hand of the Lord his God, for the hand of the Lord was on, of his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law, of the Lord, and, the te- and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So we read through this, and we see twice this phrase that the hand of the Lord was upon him. And so Ezra's name means the Lord helps. And here we see the Lord helping him. the The, the hand of the Lord is on Ezra, and what Ezra is doing. 
And so here, here's a helpful way to think about what it means to have the hand of the Lord on you. This is from, from another preacher I heard. He talks about it in context of raising children. So the, the hand of the Lord is, is not the same as the love of God. The love of God is unconditional. So the hand of God is not the same as the love of God. But in our relationship with our children, it's, it's like it is with them when they're small. We will always love them, but our hand may not always be with them. Sometimes it has to turn against them in discipline, right? And so the hand of our hand is on our children. We, we touch our children. We caress our children. We hug our children. We bless our children. We, we with our hands, also discipline our children. And so some of, some of the times, the hand is on our child in love, and sometimes the hand is removed and discipline occurs. And so we love our children, but our hand isn't always with our children. What our children desire, though, is that the hand be on them. They desire that touch and affection from us. And so it's the same way with God. We desire his hand to be on us. God always loves us, but his hand is not always on us. And in the story of Ezra, we see very clearly that the hand of the Lord is on Ezra. And there's a couple things that happen whenever the hand is on him. The first thing is God provides for all of his needs. In verse 6, we see that the king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. So the hand is on him, and it, and it provides everything that they need. Ezra asked the king, and everything is supplied to him. And so when the hand of the Lord is on you, you receive great gifts from God, and he provides what you need. The second thing is that when God is, is having his helping hand on Ezra, he helps Ezra to be incredibly efficient. As we read through the story, we see that the priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, the temple servants, they all go with him. So in verse 7, some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of, the, of God was on him. So it took them four months to make this journey. Okay? For us, four months for a trip sounds horrible, right? We can get on an airplane and get anywhere in the country in two or three hours, right? Minus all the airport layovers and all the horrible stuff that you might get to there. But actual travel time could just be a couple hours, right? And so we look at a four-month trip and that's, think that just is an eternity to try to get somewhere. Well, the, the trip from Babylon to Jerusalem, it's, it's 500 miles between the two. But there is a giant desert in between the two. And so they can't make a straight line from one to the other. They have to take a route along rivers and water sources. And it's really about a 900-mile trip. So, so the trip nearly doubles, and they're going on this trip, and they're going in the springtime. And if we remember in the story of David, what happens in the springtime? Kings go off to war, right? And so the kings are off to war, and so there is no telling what kind of things they encounter along this way. And on top of that, how many of you have ever traveled in a group? 
oh my goodness, traveling in a group is a beating, right? Because everything takes so much longer. It's like every potty break is like 45 minutes to three hours long. And it's like you never get everybody back in the van and you finally get everybody loaded and then somebody forgot to go to the bathroom or worse, you left somebody in the bathroom and you have to go back and get But it's like traveling in groups. So imagine this group, they're going along in the springtime when, when armies are out at war, they're going through harsh terrain and, get this, they're preachers and musicians. <laughs> so they're not the most rugged crew, right? And here they are facing wartime, facing harsh conditions, and they're in a large group of singers. Imagine that. So all the divas are like fighting for attention. I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, but here we are on this trip. And so this is easily a trip that could have taken a full year. Really, it could have taken a full year, but the hand of God was on them, and it only took four months. So four months is incredibly efficient. It doesn't sound like it to us, but it was incredibly efficient. So they were able to get there relatively quickly. And so we see that when the hand of God is on someone, they receive what they need, and they're able to work with great efficiency. And so we wonder, why was the hand of God on Ezra? You know, what was it that he did? What, what was it that, that he didn't do? What was it that, that allowed him to be blessed by God in such a way? And so we, we look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 9. For, that tells us because, because of the things that we just read, for the gracious hand of God was on him, for Ezra had devoted himself. Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So why was the hand of God on Ezra? Because the NRSV puts it this way, Ezra had set his heart, he had set his heart to study the law and to do it, so not just study it, but do it, and to teach the statutes and ordinances. And so there is this first piece where he studied it, he did it, and then he taught it to others. And so we see the hand of God on Ezra because of this. First, we, we, we think about studying it. It's like being in the Word of God is, is so important. Making the time for that, prioritizing that, studying that. Knowing what it is that God has called us to, we need to be students of the Word. And so Ezra set his heart on the study of it. It wasn't just an intellectual pursuit. It wasn't an academic pursuit. But he set his heart on studying the Word of God. And so the hand of God was on him because he had gotten God's word within him. He had gotten God's word into his heart. And so the hand of God was on him. And so when we take in the word of God, it shapes our hearts, it, it shapes our longings, it shapes our desires to match the heart and the desire of God. When we, when we take in his word, his desires become our desires. His priorities become our priorities. His longings become our longings because we take in his word. 
That's why we offer Sunday morning classes. That's why we offer this time here where we spend a focused time in the Word. It's why we're, we're challenged to be a part of something where we're, we're studying God's Word. It's why we're doing the story where we can look at the whole picture and we're reading together and we're holding each other accountable to reading, right? It's like we're, we're reading the Word of God and focusing in on that. But it's not just about studying and knowing the Word of God. It's not just about an intellectual pursuit. It has to be about action. It has to be about doing it. Ezra studied it, but he did it. He was obedient to what God was saying in his word. He was obedient to what God was calling him to. And so he, he reads and studies, and it's not just head knowledge. That in and of itself is worthless. It doesn't accomplish anything, but it goes beyond head knowledge and goes into actual action. He didn't just become a scholar. He didn't just stop with study. He studied it, and then he did it. And this is why we ask the question each week, God, what are you saying to me? That's listening to the word of God. God, what are you saying to me? But what are you going to do about it? How are we going to take action to what God is saying? What's going to be different about our lives because of what we've learned? We have to be obedient to what God is calling us to do. He speaks to us. He speaks and, and calls us to things. And are we going to take action? Or are we going to leave it at an intellectual pursuit and stop there? You can take all the sermon notes you want, and you can listen to the Word. You can read the Word. But if it doesn't translate into some sort of change, into some sort of action, then it's been worthless. Head knowledge is helpful, but obedience is what gets ingrained into our hearts. Psalm 119, David says, I had more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Understanding comes from obedience. Understanding doesn't come from academic pursuits. Understanding doesn't come from simply reading it. Understanding comes from doing it. It's at that point that you are transformed. And it's at that point that you really understand what God is saying. Oswald Chambers said this nearly 100 years ago, all God's revelations are sealed until they are opened to us by obedience. You will never get them open by philosophy or thinking. Immediately you obey and a flash of light comes. It's God's truth work in you by let, let's God let's God's truth work in you by soaking in, in it, not by worrying into it. The only way you can get to know is to stop trying to find out. Obey God in the thing he shows you, and instantly the next thing is opened. One reads volumes on the work of the Holy Spirit when five minutes of drastic obedience could make things as clear as a sunbeam. I suppose I shall understand these things someday. You can understand them now. It is not study that does it, but obedience. The tiniest fragment of obedience and heaven opens and the profoundest truths of God are yours straight away. God will never reveal more truth about himself until you have obeyed what you know already. Beware of becoming wise and prudent. 
God will reveal more to you as you are obedient to do what he has already shown you. And so if you are not obedient to what he has already shown you, don't expect more revelation to come. So by, obe- by obeying God, we are transformed into something different. We're transformed into becoming more and more like God. When God tells us things, it isn't just for the sake of information. It's not just for the sake of education. It's for the sake of action. He wants us to do something with what he has given us. He gives us those seeds and he wants us to do something with it. Sermons, teaching, studying, those are rarely life-changing moments. You don't have this life-changing moment of hearing me preach, unfortunately. That'd be so much better for my job, right? But they're nourishing moments. They're planting seeds. They're, They're encouraging you. They're challenging you. They're ruffling your feathers a little bit. They're making you a little bit uncomfortable. But the transformation does not happen in that. The transformation happens in you walking that out and doing something, being obedient to what God is calling you to. You can sit there and nod your heads at everything I say, but if you forget it walking out those doors and don't change something about the way that you live your life in obedience with what God is calling you to in this moment, then you have wasted the 30 minutes sitting here listening to me. Transformation will happen through obedience. It will happen through doing what it is God is calling you to do. That's where our testimonies come from. That's where our stories of life change come from. I had someone in my life who had, had really hurt me and really offended me and really broke my trust. And it severed that relationship and caused ripple effects in other relationships. And thankfully, he moved so I didn't have to deal with him anymore, right? And so he moves away, and I'm allowed to just not have to see him anymore. But that did not address my unforgiveness. It did not address my bitterness. And there came a time years later where I was headed off to a conference, and I found out that he was going to be there. And so I knew that we either had to completely avoid each other, which was going to be near impossible at the size of this conference, or I was going to have to confront him and deal with this situation. And so I get to the conference, and I see him across this crowded room, and I know something has to happen. I have to have this conversation that I don't want to have. I have to deal with my unforgiveness, and I have to deal with my bitterness, and I I invited people to pray for me and with me, as I went to have this conversation with him. And this conversation was to to seek his forgiveness for holding on to unforgiveness, to holding on to bitterness. And it opened the door for the most incredible conversation about forgiveness and brokenness and mistakes of the past and things that had changed. God's transforming work that had been going on in each of our lives independently of each other. And it allowed reconciliation to happen. Now I will tell you, it does not matter what book you read, what scripture you read about forgiveness, until you have done it, 
you don't know what it is. You don't know the results of it. You don't know the incredible freedom and joy and lightness that happens once you do it. And so there are truths of what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to be peacekeepers. He calls us to, be, to forgive. He calls us to love enemies. I knew all of those things intellectually for years and years and years, but it wasn't until I actually applied it into a situation in my life where I had to do it that, that the love and grace of God really became understandable in my life. And so when we look at Scripture, when we look at the things that God is calling us to do, we have to take action. We have to do it. And so finally, as Ezra, he, Ezra, he studied it, right? He did it, and then he shared it with others. He took it in, he studied it, he walked it out, and then he passed it around to others. That he, he wanted others to experience the word of God in the way he had experienced the word of God. And so too often we learn it and then we teach it, right? We want to skip over that doing part. That's a hazard of my job, right? Where it's like we, I study it and then I want to preach it. And I don't really want to have to do any of that messy stuff, Right? that's the hard part. But you can't teach with conviction. You can't share your testimony with conviction if you haven't done the things that God is actually teaching you to do. The most powerful lessons come from a teacher who has some sort of personal experience with those, with those things. And they share out of that experience, not out of the head knowledge, not out of reading a book, not out of studying and dissecting scripture and understanding the Greek, but having actually done it. And so that is why I am so passionate about things like being in community with one another sharing and, and, and being with one another, whether it's a small group or some sort of other context, because I have seen the transformational power of people living in community. I have seen it. I've seen it transform marriages. I've seen it transform my marriage, because people are willing to be vulnerable to one another, and they're will, willing to be held accountable to one another, and they're willing to live life together. I have seen it. And so I'm passionate about us doing that. I'm passionate about people experiencing the grace of God in the midst of their brokenness. That people who are broken and screwed up are welcome here because that's the normal thing to do. Being broken is normal. And I've seen the transformation in my own life and the lives of people around me because the grace of God got a hold of them. And they were transformed into something different. I've seen the power of prayer where, where people gather together and they pray with one another and for one another. And they share in one another's burdens. I've seen that. And so it is out of those experiences that I teach and I share and I encourage and I challenge, come and see. Come and see these things. 
And so Ezra is just such an incredible story, an, an incredible story and a challenge for us because he's, he's calling us, his, his life and his example calls us to be people of the word, which historically is something that we're great at. That, that, that as churches of Christ, we have prided ourselves on our knowledge of Scripture. But somewhere we lost those Scriptures that said, love one another, bear one another's burdens, be peacemakers, love your enemy. You can see in the number of churches that we have splintered all over the place that something didn't happen from the knowledge to the teaching. We missed some step in the middle that said, do it. Live it out. Be what God is calling us to be. And so we, we become students of the word, and we are obedient in that. Now, I know it, it can be incredibly overwhelming to think about being obedient to everything that God has said. Right? We look at that, and, and you look at where I'm at, and you look at where God is calling us to be, and this huge gap appears between the two. And I have no idea how to get from this place to this place. And if you're like me, you want to beat yourself up, and you, you get discouraged, and you think about all the ways that you're not right. And thankfully, we have Jesus. This cross that stands in the middle of that gap that brings us into right relationship with God regardless of how good or bad I am, regardless of my mistakes, regardless of the things that I've done wrong, regardless of all the ways I can't check it off as having done it right, he stands in the gap, he pulls me in and says, I love you. And so that is the great celebration of the Christian life is that we are called to more. We're called to be more and more like Jesus, but he is a perfect example that we will never get to on our own. We will never get there on our own. But as we've seen through the story, as we've seen through the last 21 weeks of God pursuing his people, he wants you. He longs to have you. He wants you to be in relationship with him. This is the greatest pursuit, the greatest love story that you can ever imagine because he wants you. Let's be standing together. We want to spend some time in prayer, and this is something that, that we're, we're growing in together as, as we, we get into our comfort zones and out of our comfort zones and, and, and get a heart to care for one another. We, we are called to bear one another's burdens. We carry one another's burdens. Galatians tells us, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. We fulfill his law by carrying one another's burdens. We encourage one another and build one another up. We confess to one another and we pray for one another, and it's through that that we are healed. And so we have a time of prayer here. It's a time where you can come forward and pray with one of the shepherds. It's a time where you can pray among one another. You can get a small group together or, or friends together. Go across the aisle and pray for somebody who you know needs to be encouraged. It's a time for us to be together as the body of Christ caring for one another. Maybe your act of obedience is 
having a conversation of reconciliation with somebody. Maybe your act of obedience is, is apologizing for something. Maybe your act of obedience is giving up something or confessing something or, or changing something, and you need to share that with somebody. It could be that your act of obedience is making Jesus the Lord of your life, and you have not done that yet. And you want to confess that Jesus is your Lord. You want to join with the body of believers through baptism, making him the center, the center of everything through that act of baptism. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the story of Ezra. I thank you for how you pursue us and that you don't give up on us. You love us in everything. God, help us to share that love with others. Help us to share the story of Jesus with others. Help us to share his love and his encouragement, his compassion, and give us the courage to do that. God, we give this prayer time to you as we, as we sing and pray together. It's in Jesus' name, amen.